Hi. Welcome to Scout and Birdie's summer 2019 issue, Folk. I'm Jennifer Keel. And I'm Anna Wolf. So folk as a theme was proposed to us by one of our artists, Lydia House, who also created our wonderful cover for this issue. She reached out to us and said, I've been thinking a folk issue would be a really amazing idea and I would love you guys to produce a folk issue. And uh, we were like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've never had someone specifically bring up an idea for an issue mm-hmm. before. And it's not our normal style, I'd say, of, of themes. Yeah. When we bounce through our issue ideas, we usually think seasonally. We usually think about things in terms of how nature is affecting our moods and our lives. (laughs) And for this issue, and as we're going into quarterly issues, this seemed like a really good fit for that. Exploring something new and a broader topic. um, And leaving more room for the artists to explore a wider range. Yeah, absolutely. We sat down with Lydia and we talked to her a little bit about what folk meant to her. And we were talking about how Modern folk is really art by the people, really primarily self-taught work. And the way she put it was everyday amazingness. And I Mm. I just love that. (laughs) I think that speaks so beautifully to what we hope to do and we strive to do at Scout and Birdie, um, which is give people who we know and love and people who know and love other people that we know an opportunity to showcase talents of theirs that maybe are not talents that they have schooling in or maybe not talents that other people know of Mm -hmm. um, or maybe just things that they haven't had the opportunity to showcase to a wider range of people. Um, We have always really valued uh, the ability of showcasing work from people who are self-taught and who are, uh, you know, working a nine to five and also writing beautiful poetry Mm -hmm. um, or creating their first album and doing something else that they're passionate about at the same time. Um, And so the more we talked with Lydia about what folk meant to her, the more it sort of clicked for us of, wow, this is a really meaningful theme for the work that we really strive to be doing with Scout and Birdie. Yeah. Yeah. And with that in mind, we really tried to seek out artists who captured that traditional folk sense to us and artists who we have seen their craft develop over time with Scout and Birdie. So we have a lot of really wonderful fan favorites. (laughs) (laughs) This issue is also more visually heavy than some of our other issues are, which I find very beautiful. And I hope it will encourage people who are listening to go on to scoutandbirdie.com and actually get a chance to experience the full issue which you can't experience unless you you go online absolutely so with that we will take you into this issue so please enjoy folk And 
now we are so excited to take you into a piece by the wonderful Emily Matapusi Para. And speaking of artists who we've seen grow throughout our time doing Scout and Birdie, Emily has been on 10 issues of Scout and Birdie. Yeah, the most of any artist on Scout and Birdie. And she was in our first issue and Emily is a self-taught poet and writer Mm -hmm. whose craft has grown and explored new depths and tried out different forms and we have been so pleased every single time to get a new piece from Emily and to just see her diving deeper and deeper into all of these different beautiful pieces that she has created. Yeah, it's always interesting when we open our email and see a new piece from her. It's kind of a little unexpected present of like, what has she explored this time? Mm. And it's so, so lovely. So with that, we'll take you into Emily's piece, read by Jen. What if I am wrong? What if I am wrong about everything? I don't want to begin with the obvious, politics, the personhood of corporations, the right to life or to take it just as freely, the unfettered access to metal objects designed to kill. Through this, tribalism tempts. What if my wrongness begins at the basics? Waking up in the morning, sun greeting, stretching, and drinking coffee. Waking cannot be avoided if one is to live, and sun is required for vitamin D, and stretching might fall in the harmless column, but the coffee, supposedly fair trade, but who knows? That could be the first mark against me. I also drink it black, which I would suggest to be a matter of taste. Next up, running, eating breakfast, showering, and getting dressed. Innocuous human activities, but dicey in the details. My regular run loops through clean streets with few homeless people. My breakfast includes avocado toast with hard-boiled egg. My daily hot shower, a luxury already, occurs in a brand new renovated bathroom with a custom $2,500 glass door. And getting dressed means picking from 600-plus discrete wardrobe combinations. Already you have a picture of me, informed by your own judgments. She is one privileged motherfucker. Or you may shrug. You've seen much more than this. These details don't even seem worth mentioning. Still, I've not described my thoughts, my friends, my church, my hobbies, my buried passions and unsung dreams, the deepest, darkest corners of my childhood my wildest hopes, my sins, my kin? Where then did I start to go wrong, exactly? Or where am I going right? Where do my politics intersect with my predilections for hot showers or fair trade coffee? How does eating avocado toast influence my feelings about climate change? And does my run through high-priced real estate affect the way I treat my neighbors? How do my everyday surroundings and habits shape my opinions about things I've never experienced? Gun ownership, 
abortion, police brutality, prison. I could be terribly wrong. Next up in the issue is Philip Lindsay. And we are so thrilled to have Philip back with another series of photos. Philip has been creating three series of photos, um, starting in Better Half, where I sat down and interviewed him about his process and how he has been exploring this form of photography, um, and particularly film photography, and how his craft was developing with that. And for this issue, Philip is using digital photography Mm -hmm. and exploring in a different way. And it's wonderful to see how versatile his skills are. We didn't want you to go without hearing from Philip in this issue. And so he kindly recorded an artist statement explaining his piece. And so with that, we'll let Philip explain his piece. Hi, everybody. If you've arrived here, then you still have some questions or maybe you're just curious Whichever the case, I'd like to briefly share with you a little more about this photo series. As you've pieced together, the theme is folk. And when I think of that word, I think of intensely local. I think of culture, undocumented, peripheral. I think how folk is such an earthy kind of word. It's mismatched pieces. It's a band with a washboard, and it's whirling dervishes. This photo series is about the outward an inward sentiment of folk and how we are a part of a group and how at the same time we can be so far removed from it. And specifically, it tries to define what folk I'm a part of. It does so by exploring the present, the past. It does so through the lens of people, um, mineral, vegetable, places. And uh, yeah, I'd like to take a quick moment as well to thank everybody that helped me with this project. Uh, Andrew Overby, Camila Rivero-Pulli, Emily Lawson, Gregory Taylor-Hill, Zoe Sapienza, and of course, the bugs in my backyard. Thank you so much for listening, and enjoy the series. So be sure to go to scoutandbirdie.com and check out Philip Lindsay's series of photos from this issue. And next up in the issue, we have Elliot Bessman. Elliot is, without a doubt, one of my favorite artists who've been on Scout and Birdie their ability to really bring listeners and readers into the world they're living in, in their storytelling is amazing. And I lose myself so often in Elliot's stories and I'm looking forward to that happening again with this one. Yeah. There's something so lovely and true to the sense of folk in Elliot's style of storytelling. I think storytelling at its core is so true to folk in the way that we were talking about it because it really is examining in like the most simple but so complex at times ways what happens in our daily life and especially personal narrative is really just telling your own story, examining your own culture, Mm -hmm. examining what's made you who you are. And I think Elliot does that so beautifully in their storytelling and... So it made so much sense to have them 
uh, a master storyteller on for our folk issue. Yeah, I think it's a perfect fit. So please enjoy Elliot's piece, First Hitler, Now This. My father's mother, Greta, was the source of every Jewish mother, grandmother, and mother-in-law joke ever written, and we were the punchline. She always had to have things her way, usually only for the sake of having them her way. At my parents' wedding, she threw fit over fit at things not being proper until she hit a wall with my parents' refusal to have hard liquor, as well as beer and wine. Not that she was a hard drinker, she just didn't think it was proper. No amount of whining would convince them otherwise, even after she stomped her foot and cried out in her most stereotypical of New York City Jewish tones, first Hitler and now this. And as a former refugee from the Nazis, you think she would know from Hitler, but there was really no degree of nuance with Grandma Greta. It was always all or nothing. This wasn't even the last time she would say that. My dad once gave my mom an anniversary present of going to do the biannual visit to Greta so mom wouldn't have to. She was that unpleasant to be around. Now, she did, you know, love me and my little brother. When I visited her, she used to make plum dumplings or sugar cookies or my very favorite, the Sachertort, which I'm probably mispronouncing. It's a two-layer Austrian chocolate cake with raspberry jam filling, and it's the one recipe I ever bothered to get off her before she became too ill to make it. And so she would make me sit and eat my entire serving of whatever it was, something which wasn't usually too difficult, even if my parents protested or said I ought to save it for later. But then, when I was licking the last of the chocolate off my fingers, she'd lean in and she'd say, you know, I'm worried about you getting fat. Yeah, and whose fault would that be? <laughs> and she was constantly trying to marry me off, too. And this was back before I transitioned, obviously. Grandma never knew me as anything but Annale, little Anna in Yiddish. And she was fixated on me getting her some grandkids. She kept suggesting I talk to her rabbi about finding me a husband and then telling my mother behind my back that I wanted her to look for a husband for me, which my mom knew was bullshit because as far as anyone knew, including me, I was queer as a $3 bill. So I'd keep telling her, Grandma, your rabbi is in New York. I'm in Chicago. Any man he finds me is also going to be in New York. And she'd say, nah, that's fine, he can move. You know, I had grand plans at one point of just concocting a fake boyfriend of her, sort of a reverse catfishing situation, you know, get some picture off the internet, pretend he was always away in medical school whenever she came to visit, that kind of thing. My parents fortunately talked me out of it. I did come out to her twice as lesbian to try and ward her off, and then she forgot twice, and then after that I just started nodding and smiling because I realized she was doing it on purpose. It was the easiest way with a lot of grandma situations. Grandma eventually got too old to live alone and went to be in a nursing home down in Tennessee near my parents. She continued to raise hell, constantly calling my parents or 911 at midnight just to get attention, or trying to book tickets back to New York with no plans for how she'd get to the airport. When they took her cell phone away, she snuck out of her room in the dead of night, quietly inching down the hallway with her walker like some kind of geriatric Jason Bourne until she got to the lobby and used the phone there to call a hospital. I don't know what we're paying these people for if they couldn't keep one 91-year-old woman contained. Apparently, she later stole a cane from another resident and bludgeoned a nurse with it. I didn't even know you could get evicted from a nursing home, but she was definitely making a good go of it. 
On top of the violence and the phone harassment, she had this other unpleasant hobby of repeatedly almost dying. She'd go downhill, and my parents would get a call from the doctor saying, it's not long now, maybe in a few days, in these soft, sympathetic tones. And then next day, she'd be up and eating and nagging the nurses as powerfully as she'd been before. It got to the point that my parents went on vacation and told the doctor who called them, look, we're not rushing home just for her to do this again. Call us when she's cold. And miraculously, the next day, she was just fine. My personal standing theory was that she'd actually been dead for six months, and the Grim Reaper was just too terrified to take her away. Don't blame him. Finally, in mid-August, when I was walking out of a job interview that went poorly, I got a call from my parents that it was time to start booking a flight back to Knoxville. Mm, are you sure? Are you really sure she's going this time? You remember? Okay, 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 if you say so. Say, all right. What do I do at a funeral? I don't know how to do funerals. I haven't been to a lot of them. So I had mom just give me a set of written directions. She told me exactly how to dress. Something for warm weather. It'll be August. Nice shoes. Wear lipstick. She told me exactly what to say to everyone's condolences. Thank you. And no further commentary than that. Everyone we knew knew exactly what kind of person grandma was, but tradition doesn't permit one to just set off a confetti cannon and then go about your business. We are Jews, and there are rules. So following mom's guidelines to the letter, I showed up four days later to my grandmother's funeral in a flowered garden party caliber sundress and black sandals that I only realized when I got out of the car at the cemetery were not actually from the same pair of shoes. I even shaved my legs, which happened about once a century for me. Because I think if I'd shown up to a funeral with hairy bare legs, my mom would have disowned me for the next month. And I was not wearing stockings in Tennessee August weather. The funeral was, in true grandma fashion, as much trouble as possible. The only attendees were the local rabbi and the assorted Jewish couples who were all friends of my parents. My dad had collected a set of pallbearers from among his friends, all of which were between the ages of about 55 and 70, under the expectation they would only have to wheel the casket to the grave on the little rolly cart they provide at the cemetery, and then lift it onto the straps that would then lower it down into the grave. They had forgotten that my family plot is on a 45-degree angle. So these old Jewish men in their big suits in that Tennessee August heat had to lift this expensive, heavy wooden box containing my grandmother and then just walk it step by careful step down the 45-degree angle of the hill and carefully lower this coffin down onto the straps. And as they come back up, I can see Bernie, you know, holding the back of his hand where his parchment-thin old man's skin has ripped open from the effort of holding this coffin. There's blood running down his wrist. I shouldn't really be surprised that Grandma grabbed a few ounces of flesh and blood on her way out. It was how she was. We took our seats on these flimsy folding chairs rented from the cemetery, facing downhill at the 45-degree angle. I'm digging in my heels, trying not to tumble forward into the open grave, very aware of my own mismatched shoes. Rabbi Alon, who was the rabbi at my parents' shul, started in with the Psalms and the Mourner's Kaddish and all that. He called me earlier in the week to ask what my grandmother was like so he could do the eulogy. I wasn't in the mood to be mincing words. She sucked. She put me through college, she loved me, and she sucked. I didn't expect that last part to make it to the eulogy. I knew he'd put together some nice, feel-good, loved-her-grandkids, credit-to-the-Jewish-people, blah-blah bullshit, you know, what with it being his job as the rabbi. 
so it didn't matter what I said. Turns out he'd also talked to my parents. Turns out my parents had assumed the same thing and been a little more honest than usual. So Rabbi alone finishes the Psalms in the morning Scottish, and then he puts his hands together and he says, thank you for coming out this afternoon to support Ted and Wendy and their children in this time of grief. As Greta would say, first Hitler, and now this. And he goes off. My jaw hits the 45-degree angle floor as the rabbi recounts what an absolute hot mess my grandmother was. From the incident at my parents' wedding, to how she made every family trip a nightmare, to the ordeal that was playing Scrabble with her. With an intensity that I'm watching the coffin in fear that she's going to sit up and start putting in complaints. Everything I've wanted to say for years at this woman's funeral is being said. And I am reveling in it. Mom, her face is blank, but I'm pretty sure she's having the same joyous expressions as I am. Dad, not as pleasant. He's a little more concerned with propriety. And honestly, his mom just died, so there's some complicated feelings going on there. But he's grinding his teeth, not saying anything. I'm just doing a little dance internally. And the rabbi does give credit where credit is due. The phrase, we are all cracked vessels, is invoked, though with the implication that some vessels are more cracked than others. After the funeral ends, I do my thank yous. We go back to the house. The funeral committee brings us lukewarm lunch and then stands there awkwardly staring while we eat it, as if we needed the help or something. My family doesn't say much until they're gone. The moment they leave, my mom turns to me and she asks, you brought your bathing suit, right? Oh, yeah. Sitting Shiva for Grandma Greta, right the fuck out the window once the community's no longer watching. The rest of the afternoon is spent sitting by the lake with my parents and their neighbors downstream from us. They're drinking their middle-range beers. I'm eating all the chips between rounds of paddling around in the water. And, of course, we do talk about Grandma. But it's less of a wake and more of a roast in abstentia. We have a lot to get off our chests. It's then that I learned something very interesting about Grandma. Like I said, she was a refugee. Originally the child of a rich Austrian doctor in Vienna, rich enough to have servants who would put slippers on her feet before she touched the cold floor in the morning and bring her a warm cookie from the bakery before she even got out of bed. One day she woke up and the maid slapped her across the face. She said, now you go get me a cookie. It was shortly after that that the growing Nazi powers in Europe meant that her family had to flee for America, and I know not all of her relatives were lucky enough to get out at all. Now, that part I knew. And I knew Grandma Greta was 13 when she came to New York City. I, she had a picture on her fridge of me drawing the event and everything. Life in America wasn't exactly easy for Grandma Greta either. She didn't have her former wealth and position. She didn't speak the language. She was Jewish. It didn't help she was a little on the chubby side. And since that was the one part she could control, Grandma Greta starved herself in the hopes of getting thin, thinking that would be what would finally win her people's love. When we were looking at old photos later that evening, my mom pointed out that my grandma, circa 1935, a little chubby, her curly Jewish hair falling in waves around her face, looked almost exactly like I did when I was that age. I was her only granddaughter, or so she thought, and I can only assume that Grandma noticed it too. In her weird way, she did love me, but Grandma didn't really know how to love people anymore by the time I met her, just how to hold on to them so tightly that they suffocated. 
Jews don't really do the afterlife punishment for sins in the living world, that thing. But Grandma wouldn't need it anyway. The punishment she got for being Grandma Greta was having to live with being Grandma Greta. If I could barely handle an hour with her, I feel like a lifetime of being her would be punishment enough. Yeah. First Hitler and now this. here with the wonderful Levi Schrader, who is here to tell us a little bit about his song, Joan, and play it for us live. So the song is called Joan, and it's about um, reconciling the need to believe in someone or something. Uh, and it came to me uh, after I, I had just finished reading the play uh, St. Joan by um, George Bernard Shaw, and I was really moved by it. Um, and while I was uh, finishing that play, I was on a train. I was, I was on the L and I was going to, I was taking myself on a, on a date to the AIC and I ran into somebody on the train that I went to college with and I hadn't seen them in a long time. And I had this idea that uh, our relationship, my relationship to this person um, had ended on a good note and I had kind of held on like, I, I, despite all of the other negative interactions you have in your life with other people, you can, I, I was looking back on this as a positive. It's like, okay, no, this was a good relationship that I had with this person. And I believe that. And I guess it was doing a lot more for my sense of self and self-esteem than I thought. And when I ran into this person on the train and I started talking to them, they said to me, I have two regrets in life, and you're one of them. I was like, oh, no. Uh-oh. I misread that. So it, and this, it really um, shook me because I, I had held on to this belief that I, uh, uh, this person was a... Um, this was an ideal, an, an idyllic relationship that I thought I'd had with this person. But it wasn't, and I, and I realized how much I'd been holding on to that idea and what it meant to me to lose it. Um, that belief in a, either in another person or the status that they held in my life or whatever. And this song sort of grew out of that, that relationship and that um, it coincided with the reading of that play. But anyway, uh, this song is called Joan. You know the devil's calling you bad names You've never bloodied a nose, but you know just the same. Words are just the stuff that make up lies. But right now, you can't be bothered, the sun's in your eyes. Joan, oh hey Joan. forward commander the love that cuts down to our bones Joe oh hey Joe won't put no fire to your feet you promise not to throw stones Joe Put me on bread for a week, but please don't leave me alone. Time is just a line drawn in the sand. And memory is 
has a badly broken hand His face is just a face you've seen before It's good here just to lie upon your floor clean on your throne You know I held it back behind my teeth And gloried you in little golden wreaths I guess it was the story got me through If I got a on to something that something is you In the issue, we have a piece by the wonderful David Stobie and Joseph Buchel. You'll remember David from many past issues of Scout and Birdie. He is definitely a fan favorite here. And what I appreciate about David so much is that he does these wonderful collaborations with other artists like Joseph, who is an incredibly talented sound designer and really creates an atmosphere or a soundscape that really accompanies and lifts his poetry. So we are so thrilled to be sharing with you this piece, Wasp. One of my best friends told me he's forming an exoskeleton. He looks at me dead in the soul and says, I have a to-do list the size of the universe. He's been watching too much Twilight Zone, reading up on automation. It's everywhere I look, he says twice. 
it may be in you. On Fridays, I show at his door with a six-pack and chips. Tonight, he pushes the curtains aside with a finger and his gun at the ready. I only rang the doorbell. Creaking open the door, eyes darting all over this, he's trying to read my brain. And if he could burrow into my ear for this poem I wrote, I know he'd fucking hate it. He then explained to me in a detailed spreadsheet all about his mornings. How the list rolls out of the printer and curls up like a scroll from the mid-1770s. And he continues to say, I'm slouching like a schmuck. I have a to-do list the size of the last 21 years. I sip slowly like I'm sorry. I turn to the faucet, thinking, how can so many crusty dishes fit into a sink? I sip again. I look to his little chin. I remember my father has a colony in his stomach and he attempts to drown them with vodka for which he traded off for beer, basically switching gasoline for turpentine, arsenic for strychnine. And for all the formative years, his eyes would turn black and he'd stumble through the door which slides open like a body falling asleep when his skull fractured his garage floor and he returned to beer, the one in my right hand, a homemade meal. I sip again. I ask my friend about his gun its gravity pulling through the finished wood of his kitchen table, and he snatches it up. He holds it to his heart. He says, everyone is sick. It's registered in my family name. I'm responsible for it. It isn't loaded. I don't believe him. It's midnight, in the same kitchen, same table, and beer, and he's telling me he's empty like a Coke can. He hears a clicking at night in his aluminum vents through the humid syrupy air wafting in his room, a capsule of time in July, and I'm all he has. I sip again feeling the liquid bread flow past the back of my tongue. He picks up another and gulps it like a man. He checks his watch between each round so our time won't be wasted together, being sure our time is nicely laid out like a nice white house with a big red door in New Hampshire, red like a rosebud, amber like ale. It's fall, and all that spatters to the drywall, slinking down, staining the carpet like the grape popsicle of his eye. I sip again. I am sorry because he tells me exactly how to remove said stains, even if infected with the hops of a German ale, and I resonate. He cracks open his fifth, and it's gone. Suddenly, his whirlwind of paranoia flies up above the table and up the stairs and into the master bedroom because the night is over and work is at seven, but he starts letting it all out, and I'm listening. I open my second with pops. I pause in defiance and pour the golden nectar over the table like a sacrifice, and I expect him to arrive, to drink it with his ten o'clock spoon. He doesn't. He doesn't have to. He does his alone. And I look up at my friend, who has been waiting this whole time. The outside gets all orange and brown and amber. Everything begins to fall as the cycle continues. So here we are. My friend's paranoia flings itself down the stairs and slams his head into the puddle bleeding on the table and slurps and slurps. He's growing smaller, earning his stripes, and he begins climbing the walls like a bug. And I haven't fixed anything, but for tonight he can sleep in the world outside of his tiny little skull. His blood is a thin, drunken honey. I clean up, push through its molasses, littering the floor heavy like gallon buckets, and he has no idea, or perhaps he does, and that's why he keeps me around. By one o'clock, he's on the ceiling, moving in bursts, clicking with his mouth. The table is dripping, it's getting sticky. Out the sliding glass door, hanging from a branch, are tubes in a hive, working for their mother in a maple tree, jealous bees or angry wasps. I ask my friend on the ceiling if he feels alive. 
He looks at me with marbles and starts laughing. Things are getting uncomfortable, so I tell him, this makes me uncomfortable. And I sit in it, like I did in kindergarten, where I wore a banana suit and refused to say the pledge, and I'd say, I can't say the pledge when I feel green. I should be yellow. And I want to call my father. I have a Zeppi pen. I remember he left it for me to hold while he sat in a bar in Milwaukee. I want to ask if he wants it back at all. I mean, if he was stung by something like my friend on the ceiling, would I have time to save him from his bee allergy? How do you remove all those bugs inside and out? If I'd tried to save him, he'd look at me with his all red face, with droopy eyes like an old dog on a chaise lounge. He'd turn his head like a crane and say, don't do a goddamn thing. And there's that thing I know, attempting to fly through the glass of its kitchen door. Next up, we have Zach Bartz with his visual art. Yes, and Zach was previously featured on our At First Sight issue. And we had this wonderful conversation in Zach's studio about creating and kind of like this stream of consciousness creation, which was an amazing conversation. I highly recommend going back and revisiting that issue and listening to Zach's thoughts on art and creation but when we were picking artists for this issue his name came to the top of the list because his style and his method of creation just felt so in line with the idea of folk. Zach is an artist who will tell anyone that he is self-taught and he is so driven and constantly taking in new information around artist processes and looking at new art and exploring and speaking to artists. Zach curates other people's art um, and supports other artists in the city through all of the different um, performance spaces that he Mm -hmm. curates. And he feels like such a true folk artist in his ability to take something um, that he finds on the street or take... Uh, a person who he meets and say, I'm going to give you a space to, mm-hmm. to be art and to be an artist and to showcase what you're, what you're made of. And I really enjoy working with Zach and yeah. he's a dream to work with. Absolutely. There's something so lovely also about the way that he fosters community that is something that folk artists do. They feed off of each other and they really support each other's work and really create this familial sense to a community that transcends an artist community and becomes something other, which is wonderful, (laughs) which is, which is what we should all strive to do. A beautiful thing about Zach is that the moment I met him, I felt like I had known him for a very long time. He's warm and he is a wonderful, wonderful artist. And we're so glad to have him back. Mm -hmm. And Zach sent us an artist statement which Anna will now read to you. And it goes into his thoughts on his series, Critters in the Wild. 
Um, So we'll now share that with you. I have always been infatuated by the Twyla Tharp quote, there are no new ideas, only new connections between old ideas. This selection of paintings show that by using what is already on the recycled canvas, I can make discoveries that will inform my critters. It's also a way to create nostalgia because it feels like everyone's grandparents had these types of paintings on their walls. By reinvigorating the old pieces with my characters, I not only save the original painting from being damaged or forgotten, I also stumble upon new ways to present and explore my own creations. So be sure to go to scoutandbirdie.com and check out Zach Bart's series, Critters in the Wild. And last up in the issue, we have M. Haverty. And M has been previously featured in a few of our past issues. And when I think of M, I always think of this real DIY sensibility, this kind of collection of thoughts that always comes together in a beautiful image or results in this really cathartic feeling. Um, and that's really what I think about when I think about their work. M is like a cacophony of different things happening and they always end up sort of splattering onto the page and creating this beautiful uh, this beautiful piece of writing that weaves in between itself. And the first time I saw M perform, they had a chair on stage mm-hmm. and spent the entire piece just trying to sit down on the chair and failing over and over again mm-hmm. and falling off the chair and M's ability to create things that are so detailed with something that is so simple is so refreshing to see. Yeah, so we are so thrilled to have them back with their piece, Invocation Number One, An Invitation. Invocation number one, an invitation. We are having a skimmington, a short procession, pots and pans filling the streets, hooting and hollering. We are taking the streets, calling in the spirits, calling in the ancient us, celebrating a hunt the night before the hunt for the sake of those who would not return. We are calling in the energy they welcomed from loss, orphaned, widowed, Lonelied in their skins, we are calling to those, to one who breathed in grief because there was little else to do. Dark electricity, coursing, convulsive wailing, beautiful crying, we are calling in those who ran into the dark, matching the grief they saw, mirroring anguish, physical compassion without ever saying they know. The lone sob echoes in the circle, forming, moving, matching, crying, becoming, singing, dancing. We call on the neighbors who baked lasagnas and casseroles, our fridges, museum storerooms of gifts in stasis to be consumed when you are ready. But please return the dish. I thought I had an aluminum one, and that one is an heirloom. We call on the water a tide call and response. One and two, breathe in, 
Now out, our old home, first measure of seconds, thought in, sound out, bliss in, jokes out, unknown in, making sense out of hills and mountains and fire, the inherent strangeness of being. Call in joy, the beautiful fools, the fools who lived well and died well. We are having a skimmington, a short procession, jocular protest against death. Pots and pans don't confuse us with noise. Cacophony is temporary. In time, we are melody. When we are done for the day, we will thank all who came in for living as legends in their lives so we can live in legends in ours and pray for the safe return of casserole dishes. We've reached the end of our issue. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to stay connected with Scout and Birdie in between issues, you can go onto Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, like us and follow us. You can also go on to scoutandbirdie.com and sign up for our email list where you'll receive information on when our new issues come out. Be sure to go to scoutandbirdie.com and check out all of our wonderful visual artists, Lydia, Philip, and Zach and their wonderful artwork. You can also learn a little bit about all of our artists on there and find out where to keep up with each and every one of them. If you are an artist and would like to be featured in an upcoming issue of Scout and Birdie, you can go onto our website and click on the submission tab and send us your stuff. I'm Anna Wolf, And I'm Jennifer Keel. And we hope you have an amazing summer filled with sunshine and time with friends. And self-exploration and all of the wonderful things that folk brings. And we'll see you in autumn with our next issue at sea. Now we're going to play you out with another song by the wonderful Levi Schrader called Her Golds and Her Blues. Bye. Bye. It's four in the morning and you break without warning but people are trying to sleep. You're down in your feelings And you just can't stop stealing They won't miss it So it's yours then to keep Oh, and Tupac and Romeo Went to the rodeo And their favorite parts are the clowns Lady Godiva Someone took your lighter and the sirens are all in your head Fell asleep on the bar Your legs covered in tar Your mother shouldn't put you to bed And when you
the storm that comes crashing through meets the levee that's holding you start singing your favorite old hymn and how does that go again Chicago is rolling away. Lost down inside me, so small you could hide me. I'd go easy with nothing to say. Well, baby, that's part of it. They put you in charge of it. It's your and her blues. 